Last week's message ends with, and all the assembly of those who'd returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths for the, from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, or Joshua from the son of Nun, to the day, that day that the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. There was joy. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according to the rule. And so, friends, we see as part of the, the uh, great act of covenant renewal, there's a flow of, of praise. There's a, a prayer of praise and, a, and a, a prayer of confession and a penitence in this chapter we're looking at this morning, chapter 9. And then there's a commitment to that. There's some specifics. It's one thing to say, yay, yay. It's another thing to put your, your signature on the, on the dotted line and say, I'm, I'm in. I'm, you know, count me in, boots and all. And... Uh, so we see in, in nine an accounting of God in history, in the broad strokes, the big picture, the testament of time. And uh, John Piper uh, quotes uh, Psalm 19.1. He says, the universe is telling the glory of God. If you look at the, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And uh, friends, when we look at these next slides, this is the Hubble telescope. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, if they were wondering, they were proclaiming the wonders of God in the heavens. This is a tapestry of blazing star birth, one of the top 10 pictures of, of the Hubble telescope. The pillars of creation, they've called it. We know who the creator is. And, uh, and then galaxy NGC 2525. It just looks like a spiral galaxy. It's just, it's like, and God just, poof, <laughs> just spoke it into being. And then extreme cluster bursts. You know, God's not static. It's not just, it's just explosive and grandeur and glory and, and beauty. And then the final one, I think, is this bubble nebula. Um, just also, just gaseous things. We don't fully understand, but these, this telescope somehow in space has brought the beauty and the wonders of God, uh, the glory of God brought it to us, and, and we can marvel in it. And so when we look at the, the history of the world, is what it is. It's to show who God is, who He is. God writes the story of history. It's His story to reveal who He is, what He's like, His character, His name. And uh, consider Nehemiah 10, uh, 9 verse 10. The Levites are praying, You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and the, all the people of his land, for you knew they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. God made a name for himself. And what was God doing as he brought 10 plagues on Egypt, split the Red Sea, delivered the people of Israel from bondage? What was he doing as he acted the story that would be told 10,000 times? The answer is the end of verse 10. He was making a name for himself. Then notice the key words at the end of the verse. As it is to this day. What day? The day of Nehemiah, which is 400 years before Christ. When was God making a name for himself? At the Exodus, about 1,400 years. 1,000 years earlier. 1,400 BC. What's the point of history? God's making a name for himself, a name that will last 1,000 years. God's making a name for himself that his people can know, can bank on, can exalt in for thousands and thousands of years. A name, a character, a revelation of who he is and what he's like. So we can know him. We can trust him. We can enjoy him as the Westminster or the shorter Westminster Catechism said. The chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. 
I love the word joy in there, that we can enjoy God, enjoy His creation, enjoy everything that He's given. And so for my prayer this morning, God, that we may know you better and that we may love you more. God, help us to have eyes to see, see through new eyes and a new light, that we may see you in a greater way, in a greater revelation, even this morning, in Jesus' name. So friends, I want you to hold on to your seats because the next 38 verses, I'm going to read these verses because, friends, they were dedicated. They sat for six hours under the Word of God. I'm not going to do that to you this morning. But this was powerful. And, and you'll notice I've underlined certain things. But now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in the, their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the, of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, Chenani, I don't know if I've pronounced those correctly. And they cried with a loud voice to the, to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Joshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, whatever, and, and said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Friends, then there's a prayer grounded in Scripture and focused on God. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made the heaven. You're welcome to count the yous, by the way. I'll give a prize to anyone who gets them. You have made the heaven. You and your. They, they come through strongly. You have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord. The God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and you gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offering the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite and the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. That's the verse on the board outside this morning. Very key verse in the whole of Nehemiah. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light them, for light for them the way in which they should go. They're recalling the great deliverance, and then they they go into giving of the law, and the and the giving of the law. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. And now, friends, it goes on to recall the gracious guidance and goodness of God. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them for them out of the rock for their thirst. 
brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Don't you like the buts? But God, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession, possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. That's the prophetic promise over Abraham. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued them before them, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do to them, do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them to, in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in their time of suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they had turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. And nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us. Friends, those six, eight, about nine or ten words are the only petition in this whole prayer. They're just focusing on God. Upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon you, for you have dealt faithfully and, you've, and we have acted wickedly. 
Our kings, our priests, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in your own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day, and in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all of this, we made a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Friends, those words in verse 37, we are in great distress. I think you, you hear that cry coming through. It's like touching a cord that's like tightening a strap around them. But I think even some of us this morning, are you, are you in, you know, the, the words that came through this morning, are you in distress? Are you in distress over your marriage, your kids, your friendships, your workplace, your very soul? And, and how do you cry out to God from that distress? You might have a word to yourself this morning. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. It's like you're talking to yourself. Why so downcast? Put your hope in God. So the first thing this morning is remember the story of salvation. That's what the Levites do. They pray back to God the story that God has acted in the history of Israel They virtually summarize the whole Old Testament in one prayer. So thanks for hanging on because you kind of got a a synopsis of the Old Testament in one prayer from verse 6 to 31. God does certain things in a certain way because He he is a certain way. These distressed, guilty, God-oppressed Israelites desperately need to see that the God of this Old Testament story is the kind of God who might be willing to rescue them from their own sin and, and, and His own judgment. Friends, is this the kind of God who rules the world or not? You see, they know that that God has created the story, this history, to, to make the answer to that question plain. So here's the issue. Is this great, powerful creator, sustainer, and covenant maker the kind of God who will rescue this people from their sin and his judgment so that the covenant can be fulfilled? He is, as we sang this morning. He is. He is that kind of God. And so the key verse, you've kept your promise. In other words, you've, you've allowed and caused your word to stand, for you are righteous. And so beneath all his other attributes, that they affirm at the outset of the story, this is beyond question, God is righteous. That is, he does what is right, always unfailingly. And when friends, when we have that revelation, hope rises. When we see God as righteous, restorative, redemptive, faithful to His promise. And those verses 6 to 15, the Levites celebrate the greatness of God's power, His righteousness, the covenant-keeping salvation. They remember the greatness of God, that He's a covenant-keeping God. His love is a covenantal love. What do I mean by covenantal love? It's an always and forever love. That's what covenant love is. His covenant commitment is a promise without an expiry date. The marriage covenant is not something that, that is a contract. You have a phone contract, you can upgrade. You can get a better contract. But a marriage covenant is an always and forever love. It's, it's sealed. 
It's sealed. In intimacy. And so, friends, God is faithful to his promises, the ultimate promise keeper. And the second point this morning is Israel's rebellion and God's response. In these verses 16 to 31, there's six expressions of Israel's rebellion and God's response. And if I had more time, we could compare. You did this, God, and they did that. You know, there's six of those, um, and uh, it's worth a, a good look at. But why do the Levites focus over and over on the sin and failures of Israel? Why? Why do they focus on the, on the you know, say, well, why are they looking at that? The answer is this, the people need to know what God is like in those situations because that's precisely the situation they're in, in, in Jerusalem with Nehemiah. They're facing the same situation. And the people recognize the repeated pattern of sin, judgment, repentance, deliverance, and generations, after generations, after generations, over like a thousand years. They've sinned in, in, amid God's blessing. And so how do they respond? How do the Israelites respond to the story of sixfold failure followed by sixfold mercy. The answer is that they cry out again for mercy, as they had done many times before, and they renew the covenant to keep the law of God and to take care of the house of God. They kind of, uh, I want to say fortified, or they galvanized to stand and confess their sins through time. All those sins that have accumulated in the presence of the Almighty, the Eternal One. And the effect of being in God's presence is that they're freed. It's like, Liberating. They're freed of negativity. They're freed of inferiority. They're freed of fear of man. It's just, it's just liberating. Friends, you know what the, the, the turning point for the, the move of God in, in, in Asbury University in America, in this college, was a man getting up and confessing his sin. And that broke something. He stood up and he just confessed before the Lord. And, and, and God broke in. God broke in. This prayer is not about their needs, their wants, their concerns. How many of our prayers follow that pattern? This is a God-focused about God and His glory. It started with, blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted. That's verse 5. And when God puts, is put in His rightful place, then suddenly all other things appear in their rightful place. You put God in the, His rightful place, then everything else takes its place. And... Uh, the main focus of their prayer is not the sinfulness of the people, but the marvelous mercy and forgiving grace of God. So when sin abounds, grace superabounds. Look at the way that the words you and they are said against each other and describing the faithfulness of God and the stubbornness and disobedience of the people. God is faithful, the people unfaithful. God is consistent, the people inconsistent. God is reliable, the people unreliable. God is faithful, the people unfaithful, you know, it's just it's again and again. And the faithfulness to his promises shines through. And how wonderful that he never abandons or forsakes his people. But you, in your great mercy, verse 31, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. So let's take the grace of God for granted. Let us be, forgive us, God, and help our hardened hearts, Lord. As the prayer progresses, we see the same pattern repeated over again. And, and this obedience led to warning, which when ignored resulted in punishment. But then this ended in, in repentance or led to repentance. And then cries for mercy. The words you and your, how many times? 30. 
I don't know if anyone counted them. I've, did you have 30? 25. I probably missed a few when I was underlining them. The words you and your, in reference to God, occur 30 times in these verses. That's God-focused. When contrasted with they, it highlights the interaction between God and His people and serves as warnings for us. In other words, how much of our conversation is, is God-focused versus me-focused or whatever problem or they-focused. And then there's a lesson for us. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Think about it for a moment. Sometimes, baby, when I get uh, a little bit grumbly, because you know, old men can grumble. Did you know that? <laughs> and moaning and whatever, and uh, mumbling, grumbling. Anyway, how many died in the desert? Friends, probably six million. I mean, Joshua and Caleb made it, but there was a lot who died in the desert. There was a whole generation that had to grow up. And, uh, and reviewing their history provides every Jew, and indeed ourselves, the evidence that God, what God has done in the past and the awesome consequence of ingratitude and the inevitability of punishment if sin goes unconfessed. And most importantly, the hope for the future in God. The hope is based on the unchanging character of God. Our hope is unshakable because His promises are unbreakable. They see in the present a product of the past and a seed of the future. That seed, friends, is imperishable. It is incorruptible. It is indestructible. That seed is God's Word. If heaven and earth will pass away, but His Word will never pass away. Ever. So the message is avoid the evil, follow the good. It's been said we have no light to illuminate the pathway of the future, save that which falls, uh, uh, falls our shoulders from the past. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, history is a, is a, is a, is a, a way of, of being circumspect on the way we walk. The history, the light of what God's done then, He's the same God, the same God. You'll hear a voice, this is the way, walk in it. The wo wo voice will be from His Word. Remembering the wonders of the Lord. It gives us clarity for today and tomorrow. It's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And so a biblical worldview makes us neither wide-eyed optimists nor downhearted pessimists. We become devout realists, for we see God at work in all things and triumphing over everything. I remember walking in the mountains, and you probably, I think I've seen it in Wales too, where you have a cairn of rocks. And, uh, and people who get to the top, because sometimes there's cloud and there's mist and you don't know, am I at the top of the pass? Is it safe to go down this pathway or is this a cliff in the mist? <laughs> and those can of rocks are there to mark the trail. And I don't know in your life, how many rocks have you seen along, remembering the wonders of the Lord, remembering the faithfulness of God. God, you came through there when I had cancer or when I faced this challenge or financial break, God, you were faithful. And then you're the same God then that did it then. And, and you will keep me going on the same path. And I look back and I see amazing things that God's done in our lives, incredible things. And we just see each one of those as like a, a trophy of t or a testimony of God and His faithfulness. And then this corporate prayer of repentance comes to the only petition, as I said. Let us not... Let us not all, the verse 32, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. 
They're reminding God He's covenant-keeping and that, have, that He's always acted justly and been faithful to them. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, and then they give their petition. But you see, they're on the basis of who God is, friends. You can come to Him because of who He is. He doesn't change like shifting shadows, James in the New Testament tells us. God is not a man that He should lie in Numbers 23 or a son of man that He should change His mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? That's a great scripture. Out of their faith in a faithful God, they now confess their sin to him in verse 33 in the words, you have acted faithfully while we did wrong and we acted wickedly. Friends, the three hardest words to say in the world, I was wrong. Probably, I am sorry is very close to those three. I'm sorry, I was wrong. It will heal the marriage. It will heal relationships. Here they're saying just that. We were wrong. We acted wickedly. We acted wretchedly. They aren't justifying or excusing their sin. They aren't rationalizing or giving a reason for their singing. Sinning. Sinning. Singing, yeah. (laughs) True repentance always involves an admission of wrongdoing without excuses. We can't hide behind hurt or upbringing or circumstances. Every one of us is culpable before God. We have sinned because we like sinning. There is pleasure to sin, but there can be a lifetime of regret. You wouldn't do it if it wasn't pleasurable. It always takes you further than you want to go. You end up staying longer and it costs you more than you're willing to pay. But the nature of it is this candy-coated poison. It is. It feels good. A moment's pleasure, a lifetime of regret. We hurt God because we wanted to hurt Him. Let there be no excuses when we seek forgiveness from Him. Confession of sin must contain no excuses for sin. But Psalm 41 verse 4 is the beautiful kind of pattern. Be a cry of the heart. Have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. And that word heal probably speaks of a complete restoration of of salvation, of being saved, rescued, healed, restored, ransomed, healed, delivered, forgiven. (laughs) I was wrong. I acted wickedly. Save a wretch like me. Why is it that Paul, who was a murderer, had such a revelation of grace? Because he saw those wretchedness, the chief of all sinners, he describes himself. Why did John Newton write Amazing Grace? Because he was a slave trader who took people's lives and he knew his wretchedness. But our problem is we think we're not like them. We didn't murder people. But we can, you know, if we call a brother a fool, Jesus says you've, murdered, you've committed the act of murder. Or if you've lusted after a woman with your eyes, you've, or, a, or a man, you know, lust isn't exclusive to men. <laughs> you've committed adultery with God in your heart. I mean, God, Jesus laid, raised the bar way up there. And so, uh, um, so when, they, when they begin to, to cry out to God in this way, this recognition follows uh, or brings a, a commitment. And that chapter 10, which we won't read and we don't have time to focus on, but it, it, it starts with them entering into a binding agreement, signing and sealing it and dedicating themselves to a deeper relationship with God. It's an act of consecration. It's an act of covenant, of wholehearted response, not a half-hearted one. It's their whole hearts. The scene must have been one of the most moving ever witnessed in the history of Israel. The leader stood in line and to sign and seal the covenant that committed them to keeping the commandments of the Lord. 
Their commitment is to uphold all that's in God's word. Some or most is not enough. Verse 29, all these now bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God. That's serious stuff. They are saying, man, I'm, I'm, I'm putting on myself an oath and a curse if, if I don't do this thing. You see, worship is central to their commitment. We will not neglect the house of our God. They want to put God first. They commit to putting God first in every area of their lives. Their first fruits offerings are evidence of that. The Lord's claim on their lives will touch everything they have and their own. Their children, that's often the hardest thing to trust God with. But they say, our children, we're going to, as a first fruits offering, I remember doing this with our son Joshua. And I remember presenting him before the Lord saying, this is the first fruits. Lord, if you want to take him like Samuel in the temple for the rest of his life to be used of you, it's, it's your will, not mine. I remember just saying, God, it's like a, a, a dedication service. And... Um, their children, their ch- cattle, their produce, and even their new wine and oil. Their tithing, first fruits, first fruits offering, will be an act of worship in the house of worship. And as we come in and draw this to a close this morning, out of their covenant with the Lord, their principles for us are the following. To yield to God's will. To develop within us a greater love for His word. To have a deep desire to do His work, serving wholeheartedly with a genuine concern for His house, the house of our God, His church, His people. So God's word came, their story followed. God's word comes, what's our story? What's your story? What follows? And so this chapter, it highlights for us the burning, building tension of Old Testament history, that God's righteousness, what what will it mean? Does it mean that He'll show His sinful people mercy or will He exercise His just judgment against them? And friends, that tension, because you think if God's merciful, can he still be judging? You know, that tension is only resolved at the cross of Calvary. Jesus came to do the following. He lifted up the cup at the Last Supper and said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And the promise of the new covenant is this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Friends, by that blood-brought spirit, He seals for us the day of redemption. He will complete what He's begun. He will perfect us on the day of Christ. Because of the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant, we are kept in Him. And that day is coming, really and surely coming, when we will sin no more. That's the remedy of this endless cycle of failure, mercy, failure, mercy, failure, mercy. Jesus sealed the new covenant by his blood and the day of failure will soon be over. Till then, we are sealed by the Spirit and we are fighting sin by his power. Amen.